While everybody is settling in, settling down, just a reminder of the announcements, baptismal service July 9th at uh, 1 o'clock at Grace Bible Church up by Willowbrook Mall. Also, Camp Arete, still looking for a camp counselor as far as I know for July 16th to 22nd. Uh, that will be in Tennessee in the Smokies. And contact Jeff Phipps if you're interested or can do that. Also, pray for Camp Arete as well as Vacation Bible School that will be uh, the next week following Camp Arete, July 24th to 26th. That's a Monday 24th to 26th. I thought it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, yeah. 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. And again, a reminder, there's information on the D.C. trip up on the website. And there's a link there so that you can register at the hotel in D.C. And then also let us know, let Dean Bible Ministries know uh, about how many are registered to come and what your plans are. And then also plan for the Israel trip for next year, uh, June 4th to 15th. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that each of us can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, that if necessary, we can confess sin in silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that you are a God of grace, that you have given us grace for salvation, that we are saved simply by faith alone in Christ alone, simply trusting in him for our salvation and his work on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. You've given us living grace, grace to live for you because of all the riches that we have in Christ. And Father, you give us dying grace. And Father, I just continue to pray for our dear friend Jean Brown and uh, these last days and pray that you would just uh, strengthen him and his family and that they might be a testimony to those around them to your grace in his life. Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might be mindful of those who are uh, facing serious health problems in, in their life now and praying for them, encouraging them that we might uh, take time to encourage uh, families and, and to pray for each one. Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might be steadfast in our understanding of the truth, our application of it, our love for one another, our desire to com communicate the gospel clearly and graciously to those who need to hear the only hope, the only solution in life, which is Jesus Christ. Help us to give an answer for the hope that is in us, and as we continue our study to understand and absorb these these facts and this information is part of our thinking. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study on giving an answer from 1 Peter 3.15. And tonight we're going to transition. Okay, we've been talking about uh, the evidence 
for the Bible, evidence that supports the claims of the Bible, that, that it is a revelation from God uh, to man through God the Holy Spirit, and therefore it is uh, it is an errant. And one area of evidence that uh, validates the claims of the Bible is prophecy. And we looked through a number of prophecies last week, three specific ones that we can just learn those and have that in under control uh, we have that information that data today i want to cover a fourth and fifth one from the old testament the fourth one is in, is sort of part of the story of this fifth one but these together make up i think one of the greatest evidences of the truth of scripture one of the greatest evidences of god's work in salvation and one of the greatest uh, prophecies in the entire Bible. And I remember the first time I read through this, I was 20 years old, and I had been given a copy of Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, by my uh, friend Randy Price. We were both college students at the time, working a weekend high school camp at Camp Penile, and uh, I went home and read that. And I had never heard this, not that I had never uh, not that it had never been taught, it's just that I don't think I had ever really focused on this and didn't really have a lot of any recall that I had been taught it before, and it's really a tremendous prophecy to understand. So we're going to continue with this. We may not make it past Daniel chapter 9 uh, tonight, but let's turn at Daniel 9, and you should have pens out and write some of this information that I'm giving you into the margin here because this is so critical to understand. In fact, I remember when I was uh, first a pastor memorizing uh, all of this material. It just is great to have it uh, uh, under your control. So as we look at applying First Peter 3.15 to give an answer to the a question related to the hope that is in us. The first question we've looked at is having to do with trusting the Bible. And the second is related to who was Jesus. And this prophecy that I'm looking at tonight, or actually there's two linked together, really connects this and is the transition or the segue from the Old Testament uh, prophecies that validate the Bible to telling us about who Jesus was. And then we'll get to the third question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? So as I pointed out last time, one of the evidences that God brings up related to uh, the scripture and related to who he is is embedded in a number of passages, but in Isaiah 46, 9, and 10, God points this out, that he is unique. He's one of a kind. There's none like him that can declare the end from the beginning. So God points this out, that this is part of that which gives testimony to who he is. So the a prophecy we're looking at tonight is that of Daniel's 70th week. So we're looking primarily at Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And this should not be new to you. We're going to look at it in a little more detail. I want to bring out some things that I saw in it today that I had not seen before or an application of the prophecy that I had not had not seen before. So Daniel's 70th week. 
These are in the verses uh, 24, uh, 24 to 27. And just to give you an overview of these 70 uh, weeks and what is described here. In verse 24, we get an overview of the entire period, which is not 70 weeks or four, 70 uh, weeks times seven days or 490 days, which is a little more than a year. It's actually a period of 490 years, and we're going to look at that in a little more detail. Why do we say it's 490 years? Literally, in the Hebrew, it's just 77. Verse 25, it talks about the first part of that. First part of that is made up of actually two parts, seven and 62 weeks, which comes to 69 weeks. And that, when you work it out, is 483 years, not the full 490 years. Daniel verse 29, verse 26, indicates that there is a time gap. God hit the pause button on the forward of God's plan for Israel at the end of the 69th week. And then there are certain things that are stated in this passage that occur but after he hits the pause button and before he hits the go button. Verse 27, he hits the go button when there is a peace treaty signed between, between the prince who is to come, which is talking about the Antichrist, and uh, that 70-week period is what we normally refer to as the tribulation. A, a more accurate name is Daniel's 70th week or the time of Jacob's trouble. So, what's going on here? What's the background? Look at the first part of Daniel 9. It's important to understand this structure here. And this first part, in terms of the background or the context, really talks about a fifth prophecy that I mentioned earlier, or fourth prophecy, rather, that I mentioned earlier, related to an Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the Old Testament. And this is the prophecy that God gave to Jeremiah that the... Uh, that Ju the southern kingdom of Judah would be conquered by the Babylonians and they would be in captivity for 70 years and then they would be released. And Isaiah said that the person who would release them was named Cyrus and that, that goes to the Persian king. So this is a fulfilled prophecy. We know that the uh, southern kingdom of Judah was defeated and overrun and Jerusalem was overrun, the temple destroyed in 586 uh, B.C. And that, um, depending on how you work out some of the dates, but it's in 538 when Cyrus gives a decree uh, for them to, uh, to return. So there's debate here, 586, what's 538? Well, 586, 70 years later is when? Come on, do the math. It's not that late at night. 586 minus 70 is 516. Very good. Okay, that's not 538. What happened? What was the key thing that happened in 586? The temple was destroyed. What happens in 516? The second temple is dedicated. 70 years. That's that... That's that time frame. So, 70 years brings to our attention, as Daniel is thinking and meditating on Scripture, 
that becomes a context for understanding Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And so we read in the opening part of the chapter, in verse verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1, which t- actually would take place in about 539. It's before... Um, the uh, Babylonian Empire is destroyed. It says, or, or right after it's destroyed, it says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes. So this is right after the Babylonians have been defeated and Babylon captured by the Medes and the Persians. The first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the numbers of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. So he's reading Jeremiah. He's getting up and he's having his daily devotions and Bible study, which everybody should do, not just prophets and not just pastors, but everybody. And he is reading Jeremiah. And God brings to his attention this prophecy in Jeremiah that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. There it is. So Daniel got out his abacus, and he starts figuring things out, and he goes, we're getting pretty close. Now, five. this is 539, so 70 years earlier would have been 609. You're thinking, well, what's so significant about that? It's 605 is the, when you have the first attack by Nebuchadnezzar. There are three assaults by Nebuchadnezzar on Jerusalem. The first takes place in 605. So Daniel is putting things together. It's that we're getting close to the end of the 70 years, and he's go- he starts to pray for the people as their representative to confess their sin and praying that God would fulfill the promise that he gave to Jeremiah that he would restore them to the land after 70 years. Now, we get some other background information from Second Chronicles 36, 20, and 21. It's talking about the attack of the Babylonians on Jerusalem. And in verse 20, those who escaped from the sword, he, that's Nebuchadnezzar, carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. So that's Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Again, a reference to this prophecy in Jeremiah. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. So the time frame is set in relation to something about the Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So part of the reason for the uh, removal of the land is because uh, Israel had failed to observe uh, the sabbatical years, 70 sabbatical years. Now, we don't know which one they were, but God is the one who keeps track of all these things. In Leviticus 26, 34 and 35, now when you hear Leviticus 26, you ought to think of five. Five cycles of discipline, five stages in God's judgment upon Israel. And the fifth one is to remove them from the land. In verse 34, God says, Then the land, after they're removed, then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. See, that's that fulfilled prophecy that they'd be taken out of the land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths, 
As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths. So that's the reason, you're, part of the reason you're being removed is because you didn't follow the Sabbath law. Not only resting one day out of seven, but resting one year out of seven, the sabbatical year. This is the prophecy from Jeremiah. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So Daniel's counting this up, and he figures this out because God of the Bible is a God of precision, and he pays attention to the details. And that's what makes this such a wonderful, remarkable prophecy. And what happens with Daniel and, and the other prophecies, because in Daniel 11, Daniel 12... There are specific prophecies about uh, what will happen in the future to the Greek Empire and the king of the north, which is Syria, and the king of the south, which is Egypt, and their battles and all this. And it's so precise that liberals come in who reject the inspiration of Scripture, and they, they redate. That's, that's their favorite ploy with the Old Testament. Is this couldn't have been written ahead of time because we know nobody can do that. That's their presupposition. And so they say, Daniel didn't write this early. Daniel wrote it afterwards. And so they late date um, Daniel so that it's not prophecy, it's history. That's the same thing that happens in Isaiah. And one of the big battles among uh, scholars is whether there was one Isaiah, two Isaiahs, or three Isaiahs, because there's all this predictive prophecy in Isaiah that couldn't have possibly been written ahead of time, so we have to have more than one Isaiah, one who lived at the time of Hezekiah, one who lived much later on who can write it down as in the spirit of Isaiah as if it's telling the future. And, of course, that would just be completely corrupt in terms of what Scripture says about being honest and uh, the veracity of Scripture and the veracity of God. So... In terms of the context, when Daniel is getting ready to give this, it's related to a time frame of 70 years that God had prophesied that the people would be out of the land, and now it's time for them to come back in the land. In Daniel 9.16, Daniel is praying a prayer of confession, and he recognizes that this is all about the Jews, it's all about Israel. It, it's not about some other people. It's all about Israel, and it's all about Jerusalem. The reason I point that out is when we get into the prophecy itself, where, where some people may think that something else about it, try to get around this, verse 24 begins, 70 periods of seven are determined for who? For your people and your holy city. Now, that could maybe be any people or any holy city, but when you look at Daniel 9.16, it's Jerusalem. It's not just any people, it's Daniel's people. It's the Jews, and it's talking about God's plan and purposes for Jerusalem, and the holy mountain is the temple mount, where the first temple was located and destroyed, and the second temple would be rebuilt. 
So Daniel prays, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from thy city, Jerusalem. Your anger and your wrath are terms for God's judgment, God's discipline on the nation. And, and Daniel says, For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. And the interesting thing here is that there were a lot of people who were conquered by the Assyrians, and the uh, Assyrian um, policy was to deport people, was to repopulate other areas they had conquered with different people groups so that if they came into Israel, they would take all these different, all the uh, Jews living in the north, and they would scatter them all over the empire. That would prevent them getting together and staging a revolt against the Assyrian king. So they would do that with all of these other people. They would do that with the Hittites, and they would do that with uh, the Moabites, and with all these different uh, ethnic groups that they conquered. How many of those ethnic groups were sent back to their historic homeland to rebuild their cities and to rebuild their temples? Zero. Now that just that just happened, didn't it? That just an accident of history, isn't it? Only the Jews were authorized to go home and rebuild everything. Now, they did send some of the people back. Cyrus did that, but not nobody did what the Jews did and reconstituted their historic homeland and their, uh, their, their capital city. Now, what's interesting, just I use that word reconstituted their historic homeland, and I use that phrase for, for a reason. This year, we are two major important anniversaries in the history of modern Israel. The first we just celebrated about two weeks ago, and that is the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem. But a hundred years ago, this coming November, November the 2nd, is the anniversary, uh, 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. What's interesting is that in the original formulation of the Balfour Declaration, what, what Balfour had written was that, that the British government looked with favor upon the restoration of the Jews to their national homeland to reconstitute their historic uh, homeland, that word reconstitute. There was a liberal uh, anti-Zionist Jew who was on the war council and that he had that struck. He was also responsible for some of the ambiguous language that got into the Balfour Declaration, which has been the source of debate for a while. But when uh, Balfour was given the responsibility to write the preface, the uh, like the preamble to the British Mandate, the British mandate, which, which was the legal document, the international legal document that gave uh, the British uh, Empire the authority to oversee the uh, area of, uh, of uh, what they called Palestine and Transjordan starting in 1920, 1921, that Balfour, at the request of the uh, four uh, nations, the four uh, members of the Allied powers that had the legal authority to do this, they incorporated 
all of the language of the Balfour Declaration into that uh, re resolution at San Remo, and we've studied that before. Not only that, but, but he added the reconstitution language to it. So twice Israel has been authorized by God to reconstitute their historic homeland. He did it through Cyrus in the um, uh, seventh, uh, sixth century, and he did it again in the 20th century through the Balfour Declaration. So this is a focus on Jerusalem and your people. So that just tells us it's about the Jews. So Daniel goes on to pray. So now our God, listen to the prayer of, he says, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, notice how, remember this in prayer, he grounds his argument on God's character. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. Your character is at stake, God, because you made a promise that it would be 70 years, and you need to fulfill that promise. It's about your righteousness and your integrity, and that's the foundation for his, for his prayer. And he, he said, praise the Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Now, the picture I have there is, of course, not a picture of the destruction of the first temple, but that's the second temple, and the rubble here is the rubble from the walls around the temple that the Romans knocked down uh, when they destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. And they, when they uncovered this, you know, if you'd gone there 60 years ago, that rubble was underground. That was all covered with dirt. But when they excavated it, they discovered these boulders, these stones, the building blocks that were there, and they left them there to be a reminder, to be a memorial of what had happened in A.D. 70. So now let's look at the prophecy itself. Seventy weeks, Daniel says, have been decreed, or, or uh, uh, Michael says to, to uh, David, um, to Daniel, and he says, uh, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. I said, Michael, I met Gabriel. Gabriel was sent to answer the prayer, and this is what he is telling, uh, telling Daniel. Lays it out all the way through verse 27. So let's just focus on this first part. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. And then he lists the purposes for this. So, in terms of the chronology, first thing we have to understand about the verse is the terminology weeks. And it means 70, literally sevens. It is the Hebrew word shevuim over here on the right. Seventy units of seven. Now, this could be days, weeks, or months. Days and weeks don't fit anything. In fact, if you trace out its use in Daniel, it's when it's days, uh, which it comes up in chapter 12, it's actually he inserts days to make sure you don't confuse it with what he says here which is just 70 periods of seven. Since he's been looking at years, the context indicates that it should be taken as years. 
70 times 7 equals 70 weeks of years or 490 years. So the time frame of this prophecy is going to spell out what's going to happen in a 490-year period. And it's related to this idea of the sabbatical years. So here's a chart. Why 490 years? Well, there were 70 uh, sabbatical years uh, were violated, and, and that's described Leviticus 26, 34 to 35, and Leviticus 43. So for those 70 sabbatical years that were violated, there will be 70 years of captivity. And so it's talking about years. And then uh, there will be 70 uh, sabbatical years, which since you have a sabbatical year every seventh year, uh, that again is 490 years. He talks about there will be in the future 70 times 7 sabbatical years. So you had 490 years in the past, 490 years in the future. These are the 70 weeks. So it should be translated 70 periods of 7 or 490 years have been decreed for your people and your holy city. We've already seen your people as a Jewish people and your holy city is Jerusalem. And then you have these uh, six infinitival clauses that explain the purpose. Six things that will be accomplished. First of all, to finish the transgression. Now, it may look at first blush that these six things were all finished at the cross. If you think that, you would be wrong because that didn't finish this. That didn't complete it for, the, for Israel. Their rebellion continues as they reject the Messiah who is been promised and prophesied from the Old Testament. Second is to make an end of sin. That is Israel's sin, to finish it, to get them to turn back to the Lord. So to make an end of Israel's idolatry. The physical idolatry may not be uh, going on today, but the mental idolatry of worshiping the creature rather than the creator in some form is still going on. Third, to atone for iniquity. Sin will be totally dealt with. Israel's punishment in time, their discipline during the tribulation will be complete. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, when is that going to occur? This is really important. I'm reviewing this this afternoon, and I just had never brought this out. It's going to bring an in, bring in everlasting righteousness. That's a term for the kingdom. Now, in amillennialism, that is the view of most covenant the theologians. That is the idea there's no literal kingdom. The, Jesus is just going to come back and destroy evil, and we're all going to go to heaven, and right now we're living in a spiritual form of the kingdom. But what this is saying is these 490 years have to be completed before righteousness will come. The Messiah is going to come, according to Isaiah 9-6, to be a king and establish a kingdom in righteousness and peace. Okay? So 
This is saying that you can't get the kingdom in any way, shape, or form, no spiritual form of the kingdom, no progressive dispensational form of the kingdom until these 490 years are complete. Fifth, it will seal up, which means to fulfill all vision and prophecy related to uh, Israel and the establishment of the kingdom. And six, to anoint the most holy place. That's the millennial kingdom. So, Daniel says, you are to know and discern. This is revelation God gives so that you can figure it out. He's not giving you some sort of shell game that's going to make it difficult to figure out. The evidence is going to be there so you can figure it out. In fact, it was pretty clear so that when at the time of the first advent, there were certain people who had figured out they were pretty close to it. One group was the Magi. The Magi originally came from this same area where Daniel was. They were a tribe of Medes. Right now, Daniel is functioning within the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and he would have been a part of the, the function of Medes. They were counselors to the king, to the ruler. And later on, under the Parthian Empire, they became sort of like a, uh, a cabinet or a special council that would appoint the next king. That's why Herod was so panicky when he heard that these magi, these Parthian kingmakers, were in his territory looking for the king of the Jews, and it wasn't him. These were kingmakers looking for a king. It wasn't him. So where did they get this idea? Probably from Daniel, because Daniel would have been a witness to the Medes and to this group of, of magi. These were the astrologers and the fortune tellers and every group like that within the kingdom. So this, this was known. Also, you have people uh, who, like Anna, uh, at, the, at the temple looking for the Messiah. You had others that were there looking for the Messiah. And so this would have been very, 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 very clear. People could know and discern, and they could figure these things out. So the first 69 weeks, if the 69 weeks, if the 70 weeks refers to 490 years, all we have to do is figure out the starting point. It's going to be 490 years from a particular point in time. So the verse reads, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of a command or a decree. So it's going to start with a decree. A decree to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah uh, the prince, there shall be seven and 62 weeks. And then it says the street shall be built again. That has to do with what's inside the walls of the city. So the streets are rebuilt so that there is easy traveling within the city. It's not just rubble from being destroyed. Will be built again. Uh, actually, the term for street isn't really a street. Uh, this is a word for a plaza. In fact, if you look at New American Standard, I think it, tra uh, it translates this pl plaza and moat. Uh, New King James threw me off there. I was studying in, uh, New American in the Hebrew earlier. The street here is the word for plaza, which means a marketplace. 
in a walled city, you would go in, and inside the wall was where people would come, and this is where they would bring their wares, and their fr- the people who'd come from the farms would bring their fruits and vegetables and set up their little uh, uh, farmer stand. Okay, so inside you have commerce, you have an e- a thriving economy, and then there's the wall. Actually, the Hebrew word there has to do with that which is cut. Okay, the literal meaning of the word, and in Aramaic and in Akkadian and some of the other cognate languages, it specifically refers to a moat or a ditch that would be dug outside the wall. So the idea here is that it's not just a decree to go back. It's not a decree just to go back and rebuild a temple. It's a decree to rebuild the economy and the fortifications and defenses of the city. And that's the nature of only one decree. So people will guess at four, uh, four different decrees, the decree of Cyrus, which is in 539, which was simply to go back and told them they could rebuild the temple. The decree of Darius in 519 authorized some more to go back and to finish uh, building the temple. The decree of Artaxerxes, uh, Longomenus to Ezra, in 457, that's still a little early, but it still didn't involve rebuilding the fortifications. But the decree of Artaxerxes Longomanus to Nehemiah, which was March the 5th, 444 BC, so you can write that date down in your Bible in the margin so you can get to it. That date in Nehemiah 2 1 through 8 had specific statements related to the city the walls, and the gates, okay? So that's what you're looking for, is a decree that specifies the city, the walls, and the fortifications. So if we build a chart here, we see that the starting point is this decree to restore the fortifications of the city, and that is on, we can date this from the records that we have of Persia, on March the 5th, 444 B.C., Artaxerxes' decree. Now, if that's when it begins, when is this first period or the 69 weeks going to be complete? When does that end? And that ends on March the 30th, A.D. 33, four days before the death of Jesus. Now, we're going to get into the details of how you calculate that in just a minute, uh, that's described in Matthew chapter 21, Luke 21, 38 to 44. These are passages that describe what is often called the triumphal entry, but it's not that triumphant, but it is his entry into Jerusalem. Now, it's clear from the way the text is written. It says, after the 62 weeks, we'll look at that in a minute, Messiah shall be cut off, not at the end of the 62 weeks, but after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So there's, there's some, something stops that 69th week. Remember, there's seven weeks in verse 25. There'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. We add those two together. That's 69 weeks. After the 62 weeks, which is the 69th week, Messiah is going to be cut off. But the 70th week doesn't begin until uh, the prince of the uh, people, 
uh, the people of the prince who is to come, signs a covenant. Verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with the many for one week. That's that 70th week. So there's obviously a gap here between the 69th week and the 70th week. And that's a gap of at least 37 years. How did I get 37 years? Jesus is crucified probably 33. Some people say 30. Some people say 31. But it's most likely 33. And the temple's destroyed in 70. If you subtract 33 from 70, most of the time you get 37. Unless you're me. Then you vary a few times. Okay. There's a gap of at least 37 years. So there's a gap there. Now, nothing says how long the gap's supposed to be, but it's clear from the text that there's a gap between the crucifixion and that tribulation period that's going to come. So that's important because that tells us that God hit the pause button before the crucifixion. So we look at it this way. There's this decree to restore on March the 5th, and if we take seven weeks and 62 weeks, that's 69 weeks, and that's when Messiah the Prince is cut off, and Jesus enters into Jerusalem on March the 30th of A.D. 33. Now, when I get around to it, we'll do a chronology on the uh, last week of Christ, and we'll, we'll see the data for this. But that's all for Israel. Now, you can figure this out as to how long uh, this is going to be, and we'll do that in just a minute. Now, the next thing I want to point out about Daniel 9.26 is this. Then after the 62 weeks, so he's cut off after the 62 weeks, he will be cut off, and he will have a spiritual throne in heaven. Is that what it says? He'll be cut off, and he'll be on the spiritual throne of David in heaven. That's progressive dispensationalism. Okay? The first was amillennialism. He's cut off, and he'll still have a kingdom. No, none of the above. This is really clear. I hadn't gone back through this in detail in a long time, but he will be cut off and have nothing, no kingdom. What have I been hammering in Matthew over and over again for the last three years? Jesus comes to offer the kingdom, and it's not, after the uh, resurrection, it's not, a and, and Pentecost, it's not some spiritual form of the kingdom. See, that's what people come along with, and they say, oh, it's a spiritual form of the kingdom. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting on the throne, spiritual throne of David. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so you'll hear people talking all the time in our culture. We have to do this for the kingdom and that for the kingdom and blah, blah, blah. The, a couple of times the Bible uses that kind of language, but it's talking about doing something today that's going to impact, have its impact when the kingdom comes in the future. That's why Jesus had the disciples pray, thy kingdom come. He's offering the kingdom, but then it was postponed. The kingdom is going to come in the future. And so we have all this that doesn't fit the exegesis of Scripture. He will be cut off and have nothing. He's not going to have a shred of royal possessions until, as Daniel 7 describes, the Son of Man goes to the, the uh, Ancient of Days 
and is given the kingdom. And that hasn't happened yet. So after the 62 weeks, he'll be cut off and have nothing. So we have the death of the Messiah. He'll be cut off. That occurred four days after the 69 weeks ended. He's crucified on April the 3rd of AD, of 30, of AD 33, and he will have nothing. He will pay for our sins, and that lays the groundwork for the future fulfillment of the, of the uh, covenants. So what we have is a period of 490 years, less seven, because that last seven doesn't come until the prince of the people who is to come signs that covenant. So if we multiply 69 times seven, that comes to 483 years. And if we multiply out the days, and I'll show you how we do that in a minute, it comes to 173,880 days. Now, these numbers should be in the margin of your Bible, so you can access them if you need to. 173,880 days. I memorized that about 40-something years ago. That's how long it is from the decree from Artaxerxes to the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem four days before the crucifixion. Now, what we read in the in-between period is that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. There we have an artist's rendition of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The city was destroyed and the sanctuary was destroyed by the Romans under, uh, under Titus. And it says, The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. That just means that it's just going to be horrible. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews that were slaughtered by the Romans when they destroyed the second temple in A.D. 70. So that prophecy is fulfilled as well. So then we get to the 70th week, which is described in 927. It's one week of years or seven years. And the question is, is this past? That's the preterist position, that it was fulfilled uh, at 70 AD. Or, and that would mean there's no gap. That's their view. There's no gap between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. And then there's the gap view, and that is that there's a gap of at almost 2,000 years between the destruction of Jerusalem and the signing of that covenant with the Antichrist. So we have Israel in the times of the Gentiles under the dominion of, of Gentiles. Even though they have an Israel state, they are still under the controlled Gentiles, the Temple Mount it still has this horrible uh, blasphemy up there. It's not just a blasphemy to the Jews because it's on the Temple Mount. Inside that Dome of the Rock, there are numerous Arabic inscriptions which are all verses taken out of the Quran that uh, refute or claim to refute or reject the idea that Jesus is God, and they are verses that are blasphemous to the deity of Christ. This is a monument to anti-Christianity, and if you uh, look at 
this slide doesn't have quite enough light on the screen, but you see a couple of gray domes over here. Those gray domes are the two domes on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And originally it was two churches, one over Golgotha and one over the tomb. And then as the churches were built and rebuilt through the centuries, they merged into one church. And it's not that far to go from Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, to where Joseph's tomb was. It's about twice as far as from me to the back corner of the room. That's not very far. And it's real easy to walk back and forth. So this idea that we'll run into eventually when we're talking about the chronology of the last week, one of the ideas that's put out there is... Um, by one scholar who lists 20 different things that had to happen between the death of Christ and sundown. He obviously had never been into Jerusalem because at that time it's only about um, a couple hundred feet from Golgotha or, and the tomb to uh, uh, the praetorium. And it doesn't take long to go back and forth. There's two or three trips going back and forth. He said this would have taken a very long time well, they used to think the praetorium was over on the other side of, of Jerusalem. That would have taken maybe a little bit longer. It's not that much further, especially back then. You didn't have all these little tiny streets in the old city. So it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be under the times of the Gentiles, still the times of the Gentiles. And that 173,880 days. Now, how do we get that? Well, we have to look at prophecy. A solar year is 365 days, roughly. Okay? If you multiply that out, it doesn't work. But if you look at Scripture, Scripture, the Jews use a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. Lunar calendar is 360 days. That's why they have to do a massive adjustment every now and then because they have those extra five days each year. In Daniel 9.27 the verse that we're uh, looking at here, he shall uh, confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of that week. So that week is divided in half to a half a week or three and a half days. Now that three and a half day period is also described by the phrase time, times, and a half a time. And that phrase is used in Daniel 7.25 and Daniel 12.7. And in Revelation 12.14, see, that's how Revelation comes back and picks up this language from Daniel and applies that to the tribulation period. So in Daniel 12.14, it's really clear that the time times and a half a time is 1,260 days. That's in Revelation 12.6. 12.6 and 12.14 are the same context. That tells us specifically that time, times, and a half a time, and we're going to see that that's a year, times is plural, it's two years, and a half a time is a half year, that's three and a half years. Three and a half years is a half a week, half of seven. So, Revelation 12, 6, 11, 3, you ought to have side notes in your Bible where you can go, if you're looking at Daniel uh, 927, middle of the week, you ought to have a note there or at least cross-referenced in your, maybe in your margin or somewhere, to look at 
Daniel 7.25, Daniel 12.7, Revelation 12.6, all of these are talking about the same length of time, just using different terms. And then the fourth term that's used is 42 months, and that's used in Revelation 11.2. See that? 11.3, 1,260 days, 11.2, 42 months, talking about the same thing in the same context. So, we have to conclude from this that 42 months is 1,260 days. That only works if every month is 30 days. That's a lunar calendar. And that's the same as time, times, and a half a time. And that's the same as half a week. So, all of that goes together. Therefore, the conclusion is a month is 30 days and a year is 360 days. And if you multiply 360 days out times three and a half years, you come up and, I mean, uh, take that that uh, 360 days a year and you multiply out your um, uh, 483 years times 360 days, you come up with your 173,880 days. So that's this chart. 69 times 7 times 360 equals 173,880 days. From March the 5th, 444 B.C., the decree to go back and rebuild the, um, the, the, the fortifications and the economy of the city March 5th, 444 B.C., plus 173,880 days comes to March 30th, A.D. 33. That's pretty close. That would be the Monday before Christ goes to the cross. Now, how do you verify that? If you take 444 B.C. and you add it to 33 years A.D., you come out with 477. But there's no year zero. So it's 476 years. Then you take that 476 years and you multiply it by a solar calendar, 365 and a quarter days, working it out to uh, about seven, eight decibels, uh, decimal places, That's 173,855 days. Then you take it to um, between March 5th and March 30th is 25 days, and that comes out to 173,880 days. Works it out and confirms it. But what happens to the other seven years? Well, that's the last week, which is the tribulation period, and that's described in Daniel 9.27. That's not really our focus in this study. What we're looking at is this, and that is that this is a precise prophecy related to when the Messiah is going to come and uh, when he will be cut off so that you can work the details out uh, on the calendar, figure out exactly when the Messiah would come. Now, in the intervening period, you have the cross and the destruction of the temple, and then sometime in the future, there's the coming prince, where you have the 70th week, 
And if the first part was fulfilled literally, then I guess the second part is just going to be figurative, right? No. The second part is going to be literal also. That's one of the important things is when you look at these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, they're all so literal. So this is how you work it all out. Now, what I want to do probably in about 10 minutes, because we've gone through this a lot, is just look at about six or seven other key verses you can go to for prophecies in the Old Testament. The second's the virgin birth. That's in Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin. The, the definite article is there in the Hebrew, not just any virgin, but there's something specific about it. And that goes back to understanding the prophecy from Genesis 3:15. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Meaning, which means God with us. El is the word for God. It's the singular of Elohim, which is the plural. And the I represents the uh, Hebrew prefix for first person. Sing- our first person plural, I, or, or, I mean us, God with us. And the, I mean, excuse me, the Im is with, and the other tells us it's with us. It's the plural, Ima. A man is is uh, with us, and L the U the N U is the uh, first person plural, and the L is God. So Emmanuel is God with us. But this there's a lot of debate over the meaning of the word uh, virgin there. But the important thing is that this is a sign. See the word Alma that's used here. We'll talk about it in a minute is a word that refers to an extremely young girl who is of marriageable age. It's not necessarily talking about a virgin. That's not the core meaning of the word. But the context indicates that because it's not a sign for a young girl of marriageable age to get pregnant. happens all the time. Some places it happens uh, more often than other places. I'm reminded of the a story a few years ago. They had a hard time uh, putting on a Christmas play in Washington, D.C. because no one could find a virgin. So we have the virgin shall conceive. Now, what's going on in the context? What's this sign? Is this a sign of Isaiah's wife that she's going to give birth? Or is this a sign of something more distant? Some people will try to tell you it's both. It's very, very popular that there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And I think you have to pay attention to the details of the text in order to see the difference. Now, the context here is a word, a message of comfort to Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. Ahaz is not a believer. Ahaz is talked about in, in Kings as one of those who burned his children alive in the arms of Molech. He is a horrible, evil, uh, idolatrous uh, worshiper of, of Moloch and the other fertility religions. came to pass in the days of Ahaz, who's the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, who's the king in Syria, sort of sounds like today. You've got a bad guy up north in Syria, 
Uh, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, he's the king in the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's sort of like the Palestinians going into an alliance with the, uh, with the, uh, with the Syrians, and they're going to attack uh, the Jews. Similar kind of thing. Always these kind of wars going on in, in that area. So Ahaz goes up to Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem, rather, to make war against it. And the reason is, is they, this is satanically inspired because they want to kill Ahaz because he's from the line of David. And they want to wipe out the house of David. They want to make it impossible. This is Satan's goal to make it impossible for God to fulfill his covenant promises. And if he can wipe out the house of David, then God can't uh, fulfill his covenant. So he's going to give some comfort. And that's verse 2. It was told to the house of David. Notice the emphasis in the text is on the house of David, saying serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart, that is Ahaz's heart and the heart of his people, were moved as the trees of the woods and are moved with the wind. They're shaking. They're They're fearful. They're panicky. That's the imagery there. As the trees shake in the wind, that's how people were. They were scared to death. So here's a map. This is the purple's the northern kingdom. The green down here is the southern kingdom. Up here is Aram. Actually, in the text, it says the king of Aram. Syria just sort of modernizes it for us to know the geography. Here's Damascus. This is the area of, of modern Syria. And then um, northern kingdom. So they've allied themselves to attack Ahaz in the south. This is just another map looking at the same, same thing. So the Lord says to Isaiah, go out, meet Ahaz, you and Sheryashiv, your son. At, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Notice how specific that is. You're going to meet him at a specific location. And what he's doing there, what Ahaz is doing there is working on the city's defenses. If you're going to be in a city with siege, you better have water. So they're building this aqueduct there. They're making sure they're going to have enough water when they come under siege. And Isaiah says to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking brands, firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. If you've got a smoking firebrand, that's the end of something that has been hotter and has been flaming. If it's left down to just the embers, you know it is going out. They're on the way out. They've been at the apex apex of their power, and now they're going to the nadir of their power. goes on to say, Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah plotted evil against you all. Plural. Who's the y'all referring to? The house of David. Saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let's make a gap in his wall for ourselves, said a king over them, the son of Tobiel. See, they want to set this, this imposter up there and destroy the house of David. And the Lord says, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. It doesn't have anything to do with Ahaz. God's got to be true to his covenant promise to David. And then it goes on to say, The head of Syria is Damascus. That's the capital of Syria's Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. He's the king. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. That's the northern kingdom. They'll be destroyed in 7, uh, 722. They'll be wipe, wiped out so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask a sign for yourself. This is singular. 
Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the heights. But Ahaz is self-righteous. He's also does. You know, he, he goes to the temple and he worships because that's the, what the king's supposed to do. But he's a pagan. He's not a believer. So he's not going to ask God for a sign. He didn't believe in God. And um, so uh, he says, I'm not going to test the Lord somewhat self-righteously. And Isaiah says, here now, O house of David. So now who's he addressing? The house of David, not Ahaz, but the house of David. It's a small thing for you, plural, to weary men, but will you, plural, weary my God also? He's addressing the house of David. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you all, the house of David, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. See, he's not talking about you, Ahaz, singular, because that would be looking for a sign within Ahaz's time. He's talking to the house of David that there's going to be a sign that, they ha- that God is fulfilling his promise. And that's going to be the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the virgin indicating the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. So that's your second promise. The third is he's born in Bethlehem third born in Bethlehem. So we have Daniel 9, we have Isaiah 7, 14, and we have Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, just a small little town, uh, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. See, it, in the Hebrew, it is a phrase, olam, plus the word kedem. Literally, it's mekedem, uh, Miami uh, Olam from eternity, meaning eternity past, indicating deity. He's not going. He's born in Bethlehem, but he's someone who's been there from eternity past. Fourth prophecy: Genesis forty nine ten. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawmaker from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and literally that is until him who it belongs comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Fifth, he enters Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. We see this fulfilled on the entry to Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. Sixth, he's silent during the torture before the crucifixion. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's the fulfillment. Jesus is silent. He never uttered a word until he screamed out to God on Golgotha. But during all of the torture and everything leading up to it, he was silent. After he was dead, they buried him in a rich man's tomb. This is predicted in Isaiah 53, 9. He was buried in the tomb of a wealthy Pharisee named Joseph of Arimathea. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
Also talks about what we'll get into a little bit in Matthew in the coming couple of weeks. He's betrayed by one of his friends. Psalm 41.9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread. Remember Jesus hands the bread to, to Judas. Who ate my bread, he lifted up his heel against me. And then the wages for that. Uh, Zechariah 11.12, They weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. That's the price of a slave. Okay. Now, I just looked at, what? nine different prophecies there. We'll close with a quote. What do you think the probabilities are that in one person nine prophecies can be fulfilled? Okay, I've got nine. I merged the last two together to kind of fit this illustration, but there was a writer named... Stoner, Peter Stoner, who wrote a book called Science Speaks, to show, to apply the laws of probability. Now, Jesus fulfilled over a hundred prophecies in his first coming. We're just looking at eight here. Okay, listen to what Stoner says. We find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 1 followed by 17 zeros. In order to help us comprehend this staggering probability, Stoner illustrates it by supposing that we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now, Texas is a big place. Just drive around it sometime. You can drive all day and drive all night, and you're not out yet. Okay, drive from here to El Paso. It's about 800 and something miles, close to 900 from Beaumont all the way to El Paso, and from Brownsville up to uh, Dumas or Dalhart. So cover that two feet in silver dollars. They will cover all the state two feet deep, Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. Eight. There are over a hundred fulfilled in Jesus. Absolutely, it's impossible with eight. It's beyond impossible with a hundred prophecies. This is evidence that the scripture is true and that Jesus is who he came to be. So we'll come back next time and finish talking about Uh, Jesus and his uh, fulfillment of prophecy. Father, thank you for the fact that you have given us these many convincing proofs. As our Lord mentioned in Acts chapter 1 to the disciples, he he showed them uh, uh, that he had risen from the dead and gave them many convincing proofs. But we know that your word is not proven by this evidence. It's just validated because... No standard is higher than yourself, and we can't appeal to a standard higher than yourself uh, to prove you. 
But if you are speaking the truth, it will be verified and validated by its own evidence. Father, we thank you that we don't have to put our brains into neutral to believe in Jesus or to trust in your word, but that we have been given this evidence from you. In fact, we have to put our brains in neutral and we have to adopt irrationality in order to not believe your word. Father, give us the courage to speak to others about Jesus, to be witnesses, to explain the gospel to others, and to give a gracious answer for the hope that is in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.